Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Roger Hudson. And my name is Nick. And today we're joined by our guest, Anthony Galloway, master's student in the uh, Department of Biology here at Western. How are you doing, Anthony? Good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, so you are currently uh, well into your master's um, in, the bio- in the biology department, and you're studying honeybees, is it? Yes, honeybees. So I'm a third year master's student, so year X technically, um, and I study the genetics of social behavior in honeybees, specifically looking at worker sterility. Very interesting. So, so let's get some of the logistics out of the way right away. How often do you get stung? Ooh, that's that's rough. Uh, depending on the summer, um, my first summer. Uh, so I do my work out in Guelph uh, Research Station. Okay. Um, and first summer, I, summer I got stung about seven times, and then the next summer I think I got stung about three times. So, and you know, I did not realize that um, people did sort of like real hands-on research with honeybees when i think of like work with honeybees <laughs> i think of like you know the guy with the sort of like straw looking hat and the total body you know protective gear out on the field somewhere is that sort of what your uh building or whatever workplace looks like or is it kind of different it's it's a little bit different the people out in guelph uh shout out to paul kelly and stephanie uh otto they um <laughs> They don't wear a full suit. They wear just the veil, just the vest. It, it restricts uh, a lot of the work that they have to do. Um, and the only time they really wear the full suit is like if the hive is really, really aggressive, like hmm. bees are coming out, swarming out. Um, yeah, no, they wear the veil, so I just followed suit with them. Um, they actually recommended that you get stung almost once a day. So oh you build up your immunity. Ah, but I see. Yeah, no. <laughs> immunity from, like, allergies? Or uh, just... Yeah, for the bee stings. Yeah, okay. so bee- beekeepers actually, since they're stung on a regular basis, have, like, a more of an immunity to the honeybee, like, stings. And what does your workplace environment, like, are you outside or is it, uh, like, in a building? Like... So it's a little bit of both. Like, I do have a lab. And uh, so in, in Guelph, it's, like, outside. We collect uh, the honeybees for my research. We bring them into the lab put them in an incubator. So you collect, sorry to interrupt, but you, you collect these bees from the field. These are not yes. sh- uh, store-bought bees? No, or no, no, no. Collect them oh, straight from the field. So and what we do... into the lab. Yeah, so we, we actually collect the full frame. So you'll have a frame of uh, brood, as in workers that are going to hatch. So you can actually tell between, oh, uh, this frame's full and it's going to hatch in about a day. So once I got those frames, I then brought them into the incubator. You put them in overnight and then they're all hatched out. And what's really nice about day one worker bees is they can't sting and they can't fly. So you can just scoop them up. It's honestly like they're like almost like a liquid. I describe it as Aww, you scoop them up in your hands and you can put them in. Yeah. They sound so cute. They are cute. They're real fluffy <laughs> too. Like they're, 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 their hair is not like matted right. down or anything. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Do they have any color yet? Yeah, they're bright yellow. Like oh, yellow. Wow. They got the brown and black. Yeah. Now you're talking about workers. Mm-hmm. Now I'm assuming there's like many different forms of bees. This is... I think like a, a youth social uh, yeah. society. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what are the different roles that different bees play? Yeah, so um, honeybees are a youth social organism, so they have a caste-based division of labor. So the head head honcho is the queen, and she does all the reproduction. So she'll lay eggs. Um, then we have the drones, which are the males, and the only function of the drone is to reproduce with virgin queens. And that's all they do. They don't even reproduce with the queen of their own hive because that would be 
their mother. Uh, and oh, then the workers do all the other tasks. So, and it's actually interesting with workers, their roles change depending on their age. So when they first hatch out, they're considered nurse bees. So they take care of the queen, they feed her, they clean her. Uh, once they get a little bit older, they can uh, produce the comb, like that wax comb, and then they build the comb. They'll clean out any dead bodies or any, they'll do protecting. And then once uh, a worker reaches the end of her life, she becomes a forager. She's not as important in the hive, so if she goes out and doesn't come back, it's not as important. But if she goes out, she'll bring back pollen, nectar, all that good stuff. I see. Okay, okay. Are there any bees that specialize in combat, like like defense bees or something? Not really for honeybees. Um, they all have stingers. All the workers have stingers, so they will all defend the hive if they have to. Um, I did see a bee headbutt a earwig. Oh, really? Yeah, so, like, Jeez. they have, uh, they do, like, make sure their hive is hygienic. Yeah. Like, bees are one of the cleanest insects. Like, they'll make sure they're clean. If they sense that a another worker is infected with a disease, they'll pull it out. They'll make sure that's far away. So yeah. they'll kill off they'll, their yeah. own in order yeah. to preserve the uh, yeah. vitality or sustainability Especially because, yeah, species. the hives are, like, the individuals in the hive are in such close proximity to one another infection can go throughout the hive relatively quickly okay. so they don't want that so they want to get rid of that as quick as they can very interesting okay so, so just to summarize really quick so so the worker bees are the females females yeah. and the drones mm -hmm. are the males yeah. all of the bees in a given colony or group they're all the offspring of the single uh, queen bee. Yes. So you mentioned that the drones, they don't mate with um, anything from their own hive uh, for whatever reason. Maybe you can get into that as well. Sure, yeah. But where do they actually get to, to mate? So uh, in, in the summer when a queen, a virgin queen, so one that has not mated, uh, does her flight, she'll fly out of her colony in search of uh, the mates. So she'll give off a pheromone that will attract the males. And this pheromone is called QMP or queen mandibular pheromone. She's just given it off. Uh, and then that will attract males to mate with her. And uh, a virgin queen will mate uh, with many males, not just one. So, uh, and then when she returns, she can lay eggs and she'll store the sperm she's collected in her spermatheca. Yeah. Okay. How do these, like, so obviously the queen, uh, yeah, I, I'm wondering, like, how, uh, when a, like, a new uh, bee is born, does it know sort of what its role is going to be? Is that sort of like a conscious decision or is that sort of like, how does that work? So, yeah, with honeybees, when they hatch, it's predetermined what okay. they're going to be. So it's actually interesting because if you look at a hive, you can look at all three of the pupa casings of a worker drone and a queen, and they're, they're all different. Really? So queens are the only casings that hang vertically. All the other ones are horizontal. Uh, and a drone is much larger than a worker. Um, it almost looks like a corn pop in the hive. Like it's like that big of a popping out circle. Um, but yeah, so it's predetermined. So um, if a uh, individual is going to be raised as a queen, she's uh, the larva is actually spe fed a special diet before she pupates and it's royal jelly. It's, uh, oh, yes. yeah, yeah. So that in induces gene expression to become a queen. I see. Yeah. Who decides whether, is it the queen itself that says, okay, this batch is going to include the queen? Or No, so it would be the workers, actually. And the workers okay. actually produce this royal jelly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, so say their queen is uh, 
not healthy. She's not laying as many eggs as they should. Uh, they can actually sense the change in pheromone composition. Like, oh, she's she's reached the end of her life. So they'll start to raise a new queen. And they'll start building these special queen, queen cells uh, to put a larvae in and feed with this royal jelly. Okay, so a queen leaves uh, the nest or mm-hmm. leaves leaves the hive, uh, finds another hive, and gives off the queen mandibular hormone in order to attract the mates. It, it mates with several different males, goes back to its own colony, lays the eggs, and, and yep. new um, offspring come off. Where exactly does your research fit into the whole whole game there? So my, my research fits into the fact that we actually don't understand uh, or... I should say we have a we have a very we have a lack of understanding on the actual genetics for why the workers don't reproduce. So, when a queen is healthy and giving off this pheromone, it, it actually suppresses worker ovarian development. So they actually won't develop ovaries. So they won't lay their eggs. This is within the its own hive. Within its own hive, yes. So, my my work seem is looking to investigate. The, gene- the underlying genetics. So I'm trying to do some gene knockdowns um, to see if I can actually cause a interruption to the worker sterility pathway. So even in the presence of this pheromone, the workers will develop ovaries. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So you're trying to breed a whole colony of queens potentially. Um, <laughs> not necessarily just okay. because, uh, so the, o- the only downside to this is that workers don't reproduce with drones so any eggs they lay are uh, going to be drones so uh, bees are haplodiploid organisms Mm. so what that means is the drones all the males are haploid and all the females are diploid so they have the full complement of the genetic material drones only have half so if an egg is laid if so if a unfertilized egg is laid it automatically becomes a drone while a fertilized egg will always become a female and then deciding if it's fed that special diet of royal jelly jelly it'll become a queen wow very interesting okay okay now for those uh, regular listeners of gradcast um a couple of weeks ago we were interviewing uh, a student from the same lab and she was telling us about uh, this very uh, conundrum but in the uh perspective of evolution um, and she gave a, a few very interesting ideas about how uh, this process would continue in evolution. Um, what are some of the theories about the question you're uh, posing? So from an evolutionary standpoint, it, this uh, form of society is actually kind of intriguing in the sense that it doesn't follow Darwinian selection, uh, survival of the fittest, right? And if, if you look at it in terms of just specifically direct fitness, it doesn't really make sense for an individual to completely forgo their own reproduction to help another one. But if you look in terms of inclusive fitness, so not just direct fitness, but also the indirect fitness benefit, as long as that worker is helping a very closely related individual, i.e. the queen mother or sister in some cases, it makes more it makes more sense in terms of this inclusive fitness so even though the worker herself is not directly reproducing uh drones she's helping her mother produce many more offspring than she could ever have and another thing to to consider here is a worker would only reproduce to make drones 
And so drones don't do anything beneficial for the colony because they go and mate with a queen of another colony. I see. And it's just kind of taxing on the colony if you have a bunch of drones running around. The queen will can lay workers and drones, and preferentially she'll lay uh, the workers who will be beneficial to the hive, clean it, defend it, go and get the food for her. They'll make the honey, all that good stuff. So like it's almost like you got to take a look at the whole picture as opposed to just the one side of the picture or the right. one side of the equation. Yeah. So your research specifically looks at targeting uh, uh, genes mm-hmm. that are involved in the reproduction of the, the worker bees, the female offspring yeah. of the queen, um, so that they can have their ovaries develop and still produce eggs. Yes, yeah. So where does that fit into, I guess, where you just were going with the um, theory, the evolutionary background for, for your work? Yeah. Um, w- what would be the potential benefits or the potential uh, real-world application? or w- What is the goal from your research? So the main goal for my research is to get a better understanding of some of the genes that are underlying this worker sterility or this worker ovarian suppression. Um, now, the two genes that I look at have been well-studied in Drosophila. Which, and which are those? Those are fruitless and FDZF1. And okay. they're both uh, transcription factors and they're, they're well characterized. Fruitless is uh, so important in um, Drosophila mating and uh, sexual behavior. It actually is very important in the formation of uh, neurons in the brain that lead to the males being able to court females. Hmm. Yeah, and actually with, with the loss of function of the fruitless, um, males can't successfully court females. So it, in, it's really interesting in the fact that this important, important gene, it also regulates many genes in flies as well. Okay. Such an important gene is also coming up in an important reproductive pathway in a, in a honeybee, which is a little distantly related uh, individual. Fair enough. Um, and fruitless even also has sex-specific splicing. So the, fl- the male flies are specifically... So have splice variants that are different from females. And we actually see that in another hymenoptera, uh, a parasitic wasp. Okay, and how do the different uh, splicing or the different expression of the fruitless gene, it was the fruitless gene, yes, right? Yeah. How do they differentiate or how do they uh, actually affect the male and the female flies differently? Um, that I'm not an expert on. Um, Fair enough, okay. But um, they... Uh, they're involved both in reproduction they're, Yeah, they're and the in reproduction, reproduction yeah. or initiating courtships. Um, yeah, they're, it, that is such a well-studied uh, gene in flies. Uh, originally, it was called fruity because males would <laughs> attempt to copulate with other males, but that's not uh, politically correct anymore, so it's now fruitless because they cannot reproduce. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then what is the other gene you're studying? So the other gene, FTZF1, is a neural hormone receptor, and it's also a transcri- uh, transcription uh, factor as well. Um, and it's been studied as being important uh, in flies for molting and from development through different in, their instars and they're changing through their uh, life cycle. And could you just briefly describe sort of what a transcription factor is for our audience? Yeah, so a transcription factor is a protein that actually will impact the expression of other genes, not right. necessarily its own. So mm. both FDZF1 and fruitless in the net, in the gene network I look at, impact about 60 to 70 uh, other genes in the network, and they can repress right. or activate gene expression. So did you choose these two because they had such a great impact elsewhere in the uh, bee body, I guess? 
or uh, are these like um, sort of like do you theorize that these two are specific for the ovarian um, uh, cancellation? So there was a student before me in my lab, Julia Sabotka, and what she did was she took a whole a look at there was a recent publication on the honeybee transcriptional regulatory network, so a giant gene network, uh, specifically in the brain actually, and um, so what she did was she mapped. Uh, genes from other studies that were looking at QMP, that pheromone I talked about previously, and to see if it had a change in their gene expression. And when she mapped these genes to that network, she actually found that there was a cl cluster of genes that have been associated with sterility um, as a whole. So we deem, our lab deemed that the sterility cluster. So looking in on that cluster of genes, those two genes were the most highly interconnected in that whole network. So with, with my work, since I want to disrupt this pathway, those make the two best candidates. And are these genes also expressed in humans at all? I believe they are not. Um, okay. I, I know fruitless does not have a homologue in humans, and I believe FDZ does not either. Um, but there may be similar genes that would uh, regulate reproductive pathways yeah. in similar ways that yeah. you can generalize yeah. the, these results, yeah. this knowledge to them. Yeah. And so what do you do in your research like to, um, I guess, isolate these genes and then see what they do? Yeah, so I'm not so much isolating the genes as I'm trying to disrupt their function. So what I do is something called RNA interference. And it's actually taking use of a viral defense mechanism that most eukaryotic uh, cells have. So eukaryotes like um, humans, yeast, like it's, it's well, well characterized. And basically what it does is if a virus infects a cell, uh, the cell doesn't want that genetic uh, material to be incorporated into the host's genome. It wants to defend itself. So what it, what it does is it has this enzyme complex called the RNA-induced silencing complex. And basically, its role is to find and destroy that RNA material, that viral genetic uh, code. So what happens is the cell will actually express uh, RNA that is, very, it is highly complementary to the infection that it got. Um, and this then gets incorporated into... That, ends, that enzyme complex that I talked about, and it'll find, and if there is complementarity, it will cause uh, degradation of that RNA. So with my work, I'm actually hijacking that mechanism and providing the cell those RNA sequences so that it targets its own genes as opposed to, in the example I said, the virus. So are you using a virus to, to put into a certain... No, so I'm not using a virus. Um, what I'm actually doing is I'm using an aerosol spray. Oh, so okay. uh, when so I spray the bees for... It takes about five minutes per application, and the bees actually have to lick it off, and they can also breathe it in during oh, the right, five minutes. Cool. So it gets incorporated right into the body. And yeah. bees are very clean yeah. animals. Yeah, so they're exactly. Clean they're cleaning yeah. very quickly. Is this the same technique as what CRISPR uses? Because it sounds kind of... CRISPR is very similar, except um, it, it more focuses on um, actually targeting the gene 
as opposed to the RNA. So okay. my, my work at mine works at the RNA level. Right. CRISPR works to actually edit the genome. Got it. Yes. Right, right, right. But I guess at the end of the day, whereas CRISPR would completely eliminate a certain mm-hmm. uh, area of a gene or of the yeah. DNA, your work works su- somewhat similarly by uh, infecting or, or delivering a certain RNA sequence mm-hmm. that then neutralizes the expression off of the normal host yeah. organism yep. or the bees. Yeah. So, so that gene does not get expressed. The protein does not get expressed. And in effect, you c- that protein then doesn't interact with all yeah. these other ones that, that you're speaking about. Yeah. Okay, okay. That's exactly right, yeah. So what are the effects of knocking down these? That's what they're doing, right? Knocking them yes, down. Yeah. They're not completely eliminated necessarily, no, yeah, but yeah, they're no, no. vastly reduced. Yeah, that's the goal, at least. Vastly redu- redu- reducing. Are you looking at both the worker, like the males and the females? I'm or? not looking at the wor- uh, the females. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am not looking at the males. I'm only looking at the females. So yeah. the worker bees, yeah, only the worker bees. And are if you're not able to speak about them, patent pending <laughs> and all that, uh, please, uh, we'll, we'll go on to something. But are you able to speak about some of the preliminary um, results at all? Or yes, uh, to extent. Right now, my uh, my results are a little uh, all over the place. So I do see some development of ovaries in some of my bees I still have to confirm that the gene is successfully knocked down um, and that's what I'm working on as of this month Um, but for my dissection data I've completely dissected all uh, and there is some ovarian development in these workers. Okay. And now, but you're saying there's more, there's a variance. There's a variability. There is a variance. Yes. So I uh, I use a scoring system that was developed in this one paper, um, and it scores it on a score of zero to three. Zero being no development. Three being fully developed. They can lay an egg. Sure. Okay. Uh, and then one and two just somewhere in the middle. And most of mine score between zero and one. Okay. There fair. there's some development, but there are some that like actually get up to scores of two. Yeah. And now, is there a way to correlate the uh, I guess degree of gene uh, knockdown mm-hmm. with the score that yeah. the uh, and that, that actually has. That would be my next step. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you know when you go out to Guelph to collect your bees, where does the sort of genetic analysis happen? Like here at Western. Yeah. So do you uh, bring the bees back here? I bring the dead bees back. The dead unfortunately. Bees back. Yes. Right, no. Right, right. So yeah. That that that's the shame of my project. I do have to kill my bees at the end to do my uh, analyses. But yeah. So. After so, I do a ten-day uh, experiment. At the end of the ten days, I uh, ship them back with a nice bunch of ice, bunch of dead bees on mm-hmm. ice, and bring it back. Yeah, dead bees on ice. Dead bees on Sounds ice. Sounds like like a band or something. <laughs> like a punk rock, punk, punk hardcore. Rock yeah. Now, so, so we were. I, I mentioned humans earlier, but. And it's obviously very sad that you know the, you have to kill the bees in order to conduct these analyses. But but obviously bees have. There's a big issue with bees dying off now, right? What is it? More than 50% of the world's population has gone down. So does your research also have the potential to help the bee populations, the reserves throughout the world? Unfortunately, I would say no. Um, But yes, like honeybees are interesting because they go through these cycles of collapse. Um, Hmm. um, And yeah, so this past year was not actually as bad as the previous one. The year before was really bad. This year's was not as terrible um, from what I've heard heard from my co- co-workers at Guelph. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, they're definitely... Bee, bee, honeybees are interesting because they're actually not even native to the Americas. Hmm. They're technically an invasive species, if you hmm. think about it. They were brought over uh, from England and from Italy um, when they started colonizing here. 
because uh, British people love their tea and they love honey and tea. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So if if you actually think about it, they're not native here, but they are an agricultural animal. They're almost considered like cows, sheep, right? We have protected areas for them to produce stuff that we can then economize, right? Wow. So and do you think your your work could have like applications for that process? No, unfortunately not, but it's it's just an interesting kind of side piece where like people are concerned about the bees right. like dying, but they're out competing natural po- native pollinators to this mm-hmm. area because they're so well defended. We make their own hives, we give them hive boxes, we say produce. <laughs> right? It's yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not not every project I guess needs an nope. immediate application. Right? No, a yeah. lot of this basic research, which I assume it, is yeah, a lot this of is a lot gene. of more trying to figure out the underlying mechanism because it's yeah, trying to go through papers and trying to find like information. It's so hard with my <sighs> study organism, especially. But yeah, would you think that you know whatever you find um, could also sort of be like? Do you think that let's say you found that these genes do have like a major role in um, ovary um, suppression? Uh, do you think that like there's there would be sort of similar effects happening in ants or even um, like naked mole rats I believe are also eusocial? Yeah, um, definitely in their insect like counterparts. I'm not going. I don't think I can speak to the naked mole rats. That was a they're bit more of a stretch. They're, I admit. No, no, no. <laughs> they are they are a eusocial organism. It's just they're more closely related to us, so I would assume they yeah. share more genetics right, with right, us. Right, right. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, especially the two genes I'm looking at, they're in flies. They're termites like, as well. I'm not sure about termites. Um, that would be a question for my lab mate, but right. not me. So, what are your plans for when you finish the masters? Is there a, a or direction or a role that you're looking to pursue afterwards? Oh, man, you sound like uh, all my friends and my parents. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> they want to be your friend. <laughs> oh, <No>. ouch. Okay. <laughs> I'd love to be. <laughs> um, right now, it's. I could go a multitude of ways. Being like a genetics person, I could go into hardcore genetics, genetics research, even like products, like genetics, like columns, like from Kyogen, stuff like that. I'm, oh, people are always needed. Um, being studying honeybees, I could go into environmental stuff. Like, um, but at the end of the day, I also love teaching too and TAing. Okay. So like, there's so many more. Like I, I need to narrow it down. But right now. It's a lot of thesis writing. <laughs> so I have to put that on hold. Yep. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, familiar. <laughs> um, but, but at the same time, I think teaching's a really good avenue to pursue mm-hmm. and keeping your options oh, open yeah. in general. I think there, there's yep. no better way to, to go through than that. Oh, yeah. And genetics, I think you mentioned the interactome or the transcriptome, mm-hmm. was it? And I just can't imagine all of the the booming fields so that big, are... Big data, a lot of big data. I that's, see, that's, okay. that's what uh, genetics has become. You used to be able to study like one or two genes. Mm-hmm. Now you're studying whole transcriptomes and like identifying different, yeah. Genetics has changed a lot. And even in the four years I did my undergrad, genetics has changed. And do you think that's a that's a positive thing? Oh, 100%. 100%. We're getting better understanding of genetics, better understanding of quicker even too, disease. Right? Yeah, yeah, quicker. Yeah, you can sequence. It's cheaper, too. Yeah. Like, to sequence a genome, it's so cheap now. There are these sort of charts that show, like, the cost of yeah. uh, sequencing, like, one gene. And it's, like, you start up weight here, but now the line is, like, nothing. Yeah. 
Now, at what point, though, does that diverge too far away from the scientific method? Typically, you want, I guess historically, you'd want to uh, manipulate a single gene or a single mm-hmm. variable. But if you're able to get a picture of the entire genome or, or yeah. interactome, are you able to manipulate one part and then make causal conclusions from that, do you think? Or? Um, I'm, I'm not too sure about, like manipulating one aspect you'd more get a better understanding as a whole like on average this organism does x thing or okay okay so which which is important too and you can also with this big data if you're sequencing more and more different organisms you can start to see hey this organism organisms more closely related to this one than we originally thought interesting okay okay or this organism has a gene that functions a certain way similarly to this other organism that we didn't assume it had or something yeah so that can give a window into i guess uh evolution yeah like evolution the, discovery the yeah very very cool well thank you so much uh for coming on to the podcast that's all the time we have for today um if you have any uh like if someone wants to get a, in contact with you or ask any questions can they is there an email or a social media um yeah i am available at agallo9 at uwo.ca um and as well i do have an instagram anthony gallo 1424 very nice well especially if you get into industry well regardless of whether you get into industry or continue on with academia we'd love to have you back on the show Anthony. absolutely all right thank Perfect. you very much for being here you can listen to us every tuesday at uh, 6 p.m at 94.9 chrw this has been production of the society of graduate students here at western university if you'd like to ask any questions or if you're interested in being on the show you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com If you'd like to check out our old episodes, you can go to gradcast.ca or check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you can check out podcasts. And finally, if you want to check out some behind-the-scenes pictures, you can follow us on social media at Gradcast Radio on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you so much, everyone. See you next time. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.